for me, it's entrepreneurship is it can never be about the money because entrepreneurs are the worst money position out of anyone in any organization. Snackable content from brand builders, e-commerce and growth marketing leaders, giving you actionable insights you can apply today. Bite-sized podcast with Daniel James. What's up, Aaron? Welcome to Bite-sized. Thank you for having me. Of course, man. Of course. I was just saying before we started recording, um, when I finally got round to launching my podcast, I wrote a list of uh, a wish list of guests, and and you were you're in the top five of those guests. So I'm super thrilled that you're giving me some of your time today. I know you're super busy with everything, so really appreciate you being on. I feel like a lot of people probably do know you, uh, but for anyone who doesn't, who is Aaron? What do you do? Give me a, give me a kind of three minute career <laughs> story of, of what where you started and, and what you're currently doing now. Yeah, so I mean, my name is my name is Aaron Spivak. I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada, and uh, like many Canadians, I played hockey for twenty years, which is a long time. I'm 28, and I was growing up. I was that typical, you know, lemonade stand, cut your lawn, like window cleaning, always doing something because my my family's an immigrant family. My parents immigrated from Israel in their late 30s, and I just, you know, I didn't want sandwiches for lunch. I wanted to go to the cafeteria and buy things. I wanted to eat good lunches, and I always felt uh, that I didn't want to ask my parents for money, so I had to make it. So. I always enjoyed like taking care of people and finding ways to provide better services. And so entrepreneurship was always something that I loved. And then throughout all those fun businesses, and when I was 18, I launched a company with my brothers and my mom at the basement of my house called Revitasize, which is essentially like in today's world, like your local juice shop. But in 2012 and 2013, the healthiest thing to get was in Toronto, we have Subway or a sub, you know, and now we know all that stuff's unhealthy, but so really providing like a healthy solution and we bootstrapped that out of our living room to 11 locations and it still exists today. And then when I was 23, I discovered the internet and more than just Facebook, but the ability to actually sell online because where I'm from, in order for us to scale our business, we have to take all the money we made in that year and then park it into another location in order to enter into that new area and then pray that that is a profitable location and then do that again and again and again. So you never really make any money and it's very ca capital intensive to scale. Then I discovered the internet and it's like, wow, I can be everywhere and I can facilitate to everybody from one store. So I love that idea. Um, and we did that for Revida Size. And then I saw you know, my partner and I in 2018, we launched Hush, which quickly became the world's most popular and most and highest selling weighted blanket. And we built that on the idea that, you know, I'm a big believer of innovation through iteration. I never want to be the first. Weighted blankets have been around for a long time, but we took, you know, the demand and we met it with a version that took care of all your typical weighted blanket problems. They never impossible to wash. They don't cover your feet. They're way too hot. Um, the weight distribution is not great. It sounds like a ring stick when you're sleeping and you move throughout the night. And um, we were able to quickly scale Hush from zero to 48 million a year in our first 48 months. We had a top 10 Canadian Kickstarter of all time. We were one Forbes. Uh, and then last year, we were able to sell the business to the largest sleep company in the country. If you're in America, you might know like the equivalent would be Mattress Firm in Canada, sleep country. And yeah, that's, that's the three-minute journey so far. Congrats, man. Wow. 
I didn't realize that the rise of Hush was so quick and to that level. That's incredibly impressive, man. Congratulations. Thank you. So weighted blankets, what was the inspiration? Why weighted blankets? So my co-founder actually was volunteering at a camp that supported children with various different needs. And they used to have this stimulation room where like you kids would go in, they want to relax, maybe they're having a panic attack, maybe they just want to take a nap. And they have all these different sensory devices. And he found this like weighted like lap pad that he loved, but it was so small. And he's like, dude, like these weighted pads are amazing. Then we went online and we saw like there was 300,000 people searching for weighted blankets. And what was meeting that demand was just a horrible product. And typically, like, just drop shippers or whatever were just meeting that demand. But it wasn't one of those typical, like, oh, I want this unique microphone or this light and I'll just buy any of them. The people who were searching for weighted blankets actually had real issues. I mean, they were suffering from insomnia, from stress, from anxiety. These are real things that cripple us, you know? Like, we all know that the feeling in our chest when we have it when we're anxious and it's just it's debilitating. You can't sleep. And if you don't sleep, it just now... I mean, since then, there's been so much studies on sleep and there's been so many outspoken people about it, but it's terrible when you can't sleep. So we weren't interested in drop shipping or creating just a run-of-the-mill product to meet demand. We really wanted to create a product that not only worked, but had people using it for years and years and years. And that was it, our, our edge. When building a brand, people came to us not only for the solution, but they trusted us to deliver on it. And it's how we've been able to expand into like pillows and sheets and mattresses. And it's like, those are all very commoditized, very competitive spaces. And why do people buy from us is because they know from the early days that we're not just going to launch a run of the mill product. We're going to take our time. We're going to develop it and it's going to do whatever we say it's going to do. Yeah. It makes sense. You mentioned, um, you sold the company. What was that process like? What was the motivation for doing it? And how much, having just gone through that myself with the agency, how much has that changed your kind of day-to-day? Yeah, I mean, the process of, of selling, maybe it's the first business that I've uh, sold, at least at that scale. And uh, there was, you learn as you go. And there was, it, it's it's probably, and if not the, still to this day, the most intensive emotional roller coaster that I've never been on. You know, like some days you wake up, you're like, this is amazing. And the next day you wake up, you're like, this is never going to happen. Like I, what's going on? And like, sometimes like those polar opposite emotions are happening like by the hour and by the conversation. And, and typically a, a deal, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, but in, in today's world doesn't happen overnight. You know, it was a year long process and with all that emotion and, and you can't talk to anyone and you can't say anything because there's so much legality involved. You still need to run your business and grow it because that needs to be a part of the narrative. So arguably the most difficult year mentally I've ever been through in my entire life. So the process was very, very, very difficult. And uh, of course, I mean, the outcome is what we wanted and, and it's easy to say it was worth it, but now knowing what it, you know a founder has to go through when selling their business, um, you know I feel like a lot of us in the in the founder community or in the business and entrepreneurial community we talk about buying and selling businesses like it's like trading cards, but it's a lot more uh, intricate. And uh, as the deal sizes get bigger, it becomes even more complicated. But uh, in today's world, like you know we've been very fortunate. We've been agnostic from our acquirers, so we've been able to really operate. As like our individual entity, we have our own office, we have our own team, we have our own payroll. Everything is 
individualized Dash. But in the back end, we actually get to pull on this billion dollar organization for things that we might not have. You know, we, we don't have a 25 person HR team. We don't have, you know, an in-house CFO right now. So we're able to kind of like, hey, can you help? Hey, can you step in here? So it's been a really good, we've been very fortunate to have a strategic partnership. Uh, I know for a lot of other people, it sometimes goes the other way. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really good point. Again, I haven't gone through that journey myself as well. Like you said, the emotional roller coaster. even though you know the outcome is one that you want, like the ups and downs through the process. And, and I think like the biggest thing is like you said, it's the emotional aspect. And then you still have to run the day-to-day business. And that's really challenging to, to balance the two, especially if a process goes on for six months or a year, right? Like you take an eye off the ball, that has an impact on, on the deal if things are taking that long. So yeah, I definitely feel you on that one. Definitely. So going back to the brand then, you know, a lot of people that listen to this are either brand owners or people looking to start a brand or in the marketing world. So one of the questions I like to ask and get people's perspective on is what, what are the common misconceptions do you think that people have about starting and building a brand? I mean, there's probably a handful. I mean, one thing I was just talking with a, a friend of mine about, and one thing I feel like is is not we saw it during COVID, right? When COVID hit, everyone was, became an entrepreneur. And, you know, entrepreneurship was cool. I mean, I, I dropped out of school. When I dropped out of school, it was, you know, oh, the option is, you know, live in a basement for the rest of your life or be a drug dealer. There was no, like, alternative to, oh, you know what, it's going to work out. And now when people drop out of school and pursue entrepreneurship, they like, Everyone's like, what are you going to do? Is it, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Everyone's like, oh, that's amazing. Like, let me know. I want to get a, be a part of it. It's like, there's there's a, a happy middle there. And I think for a long time, entrepreneurs were at the bottom. And then COVID hit and it went and it peaked. And we saw it with like everyone launching Shopify stores and candle businesses and all these like random things. And, you know, what, what I think is the, the biggest misconception is that you're going to be rich. And that right, like for me, it's entrepreneurship is it can never be about the money because entrepreneurs are the worst money position out of anyone in any organization, right? You're the last to get paid. You take on all the risk, you take on all the liabilities and everything you touch and sign is in your name. Your face is out there. Your livelihood is out there. And if you're depending on where you're at, your life, your family is out there. Everyone is on the line. Anyone that's in coming to where near you is fully head on the chopping block when you're an entrepreneur. And a lot of us like to glorify you know, the big successful, the sales, the the one in a hundred. But for me, you know, and you for sure have had this and a lot of people have, you know, when you speak to someone who's an entrepreneur after like five minutes, you're like, that person's going to crush it. And you just leave. You're like, like, it's just a lot. You don't know anything about the business. You didn't look at the PL. you know, nothing. But there's certain people that have the it. And usually the it is they just love, it's, it's, it's a love affair and it's, it's, you can't can't get away from it. You can't even go on vacation. You can't turn off. And that's what entrepreneurship needs to be. When it comes about money, I always tell people that ways your ways and way less risky ways to get money. And, and entrepreneurship cannot be about that. So true. It, yeah. It got glorified, right? And so much on social media is financial freedom and work from your laptop in Bali. And everything is just yachts and watches. And, you know, if, if, if only that were true. Although I'd probably be I mean, it happens it for some, but yeah. that can't be it, right? Like, you know, yeah. I, I remember that like, 
people ask what happened after the sale and it's like i don't know we went back to work and nothing really changed yeah exactly but that's the but to your point that's the drive that got you to the point of the sale and will get you to the future points that you're trying to achieve in your life as well so i, I think you're right it's it's it takes a, a certain type of person and personality to build things from the ground up and kind of dovetailing from that so you mentioned Hush was bootstrapped, right, from the beginning. Which So what's your take, again, for people, bootstrap versus venture? And I know it's a big topic because depending on the type of business, you know, some require venture, right, if you're building like a, a tech product. You took the bootstrapping route. Why? Have you ever raised money? Would you look to do so? What would your advice be for people thinking about whether they might need to look to raise venture? Yeah, I mean, we were very fortunate and, and we bootstrapped it and were profitable from day one. But, you know, as I often say, I didn't know the, another option. For me, I'm, the way I'm wired, the way I'm built is I, I don't think I can operate a lo losing business. I, I don't know if I could develop stories that, that might not work out. And so I never really understood the idea of, of the raising money. And then when I shifted to the other side of the table, and now I invest in a lot of brands. I'm sorry to understand the business of raising money. And it's a business of simply investing, getting in at a certain valuation and hoping to get out at the next and not necessarily, oh, I love this product, brand, founding team. I, d I love what it does for society. I love what it does for its users. It's really not about that. So it's really, you know, that side of the world, I've never been on the side where I raise money. But I also know that the amount of stress that it adds, the amount of work that's not in the direct helping the business that's required and how tough it could be if you get a bad partner. Like I always tell people, like I've had co-founders in all my businesses. I don't think I can ever be a solo founder. I just don't think I have that bone in my body. I hate winning alone. I've played hockey my whole life. I don't like the idea of like, you know, achieving something and having no one to share it with. Uh, and even if I can share it with someone, like they don't understand that work. It's all about the journey, the work, the pain to get like without sharing that journey with someone. And I've always say it's so important who you choose to be that that partner who, who decides it's kind of like a marriage. It's like you just can't just because someone's got money doesn't mean you should marry them. And I feel like when we're talking about who's going to invest in our business, the amount of decks I get that I can just respond back with a check and they wouldn't care who I am. Like I can be a you know a convict, convicted felon. They don't even care. They just want the money. And uh, I find that very dangerous. I feel like you know VC raising money can be very very da dangerous depending on the position you're in, uh, what you're building, and if you have the time. It's really a time consuming thing. So I'm I'm very scared of, of VC funding. I think if I ever do build another business, the initial approach will always be you know can I do this on my own? I think I heard it actually on Shark Tank or something, maybe it was Mark Cuban, is like raising money isn't a celebration, it's a it's an obligation. And I think it's like, it's a skill, right? To go and raise lots of money, like it is a skill. But at the same time, I think it's not your path to solving all your problems within your business. It, it becomes a huge obligation. And to your point, if it's not with the right partners, it, is it a benefit or is it a burden at that point? And I always ask people if they've ever had someone give up uh, any partner in life, whether it be business or personal life, give up on the business or the relationship. And that feeling is terrible. It's a terrible, terrible feeling because you either then have to fill in a void or give up the business or the relationship. And if your business doesn't perform the way you say you are, the way VCs and, and people invest and raise is they spread their money and uh, they just kill off the injured horses. And you know, that's the last thing you want is to uh, be stuck with your love, which is 
your passion, your joy, your idea and have partners that don't care. It's a, it's a dangerous thing that I see happen. 100%. Um, going back to the, the growth of the brands. So you scaled really, really quickly, right? And obviously you found this product that was in demand and you, you, you made it better and elevated. What were the keys to the success? Was it purely just you found a great product with organic like demand? Or what was the marketing approach that you used in the early days that worked? And, and how has how your marketing evolved as you've grown and got bigger? I think one thing that people always forget is how, how simple and basic a conversion cycle is. Like, how do you sell someone anything? And for us, it was, it was super black and white. It was like, okay, there's a bucket of people that want what we're selling. Whether they buy it from us or they buy it from somebody else they're buying it. So that was always easy because we love innovation through iteration. We don't want to we don't want to create the demand necessarily on day one, but we want to service it. So we see the demand. Next question is okay, where are they hanging out? You know, where are, I want to sell skateboards. I'm gonna go to the skate park or I'm gonna go to the hockey rink. Right. So I'm gonna go to the skate park. So for us it was like we clearly saw they're on Google, they're searching, they're 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 all hanging out in this one spot. And then we said, okay, you know, what's it cost us to be at the skate park? And we figured out our cost. And the biggest thing, and, and most people, those first two steps, I think nine out of 10 people who enter the business can answer those within a half a second for their business. The most difficult part where things fall apart, they fell apart for some of our competitors, which allowed us to, to move in, was they don't know their financials. And the amount of founders that I speak to on a regular basis that know their financials 98% and are missing one to 2% is who we exposed the in the beginning. So we knew roughly what everyone's margins were. Because you know your space, you know what it costs to make your product. I'm sure someone might get a little bit of a better price, give or take. So we knew roughly what their margins were. We knew what they were selling at. So we knew roughly what it cost for them to be at the skate park. Because we knew what it what it cost. So we reverse engineered what our profit needed to be in order to scale and own it. And how low can we go to scale? And some of the best brands in the world, the, the true classics, the sheer techs, the best brands in the world were able to scale on the smallest, finest margin in the beginning until eventually you get brand dominance and then you can pull back and widen that gap. Problem is, is people are very unaware of that gap. You know, I have so many people like, what is it? You know, you sell something for five, five bucks, sorry, for 20, it costs you five. So you assume you have 15 in margin. Okay. My, my marketing is 10. Okay. So I got five bucks profit, but like you're forgetting overhead and storage and palleting and processing fees and return ratios. And like, there's so many times that people forget the sauce. And then the other day you have no money. So we grew the business to, to zero to, you know, we, our first year we did 900 K our second year we did 10 million bucks in our second year. It was just me and my co-founder and one other girl. And, uh, we did every single thing on us and we took no money from the business. And I would literally DJ on the weekends with it. We were on Dragon's Net at this point. We had a $1.5 million Kickstarter in 30 days. I would DJ on the weekends to pay for my life because I wanted us to grow. And we went from 10, then we went to 22 million. I was like, well, how'd you do it? It's like, we put it all back in. And I took advantage of reducing my overhead to the point where I can be slightly profitable. Then we owned the market. We became the number one selling way to blanket in the world. And then eventually we were able to increase our price because our brand supported it. And then at that point, our margin was much juicier and we were able to kind of squash the crowd. So it was a very strategic, but it was knowing where people are, making sure my product supported what I said it was going to do. And then knowing my numbers to the point where I can kind of wiggle my way up the mountain. And eventually I knew other people had rent, they had girlfriends, 
had wives, they had kids. I was a 23-year-old kid who I would DJ on weekends. I was like, dude, I just saw you on TV pitching a product. Like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't care. So that was our huge, huge lever that enabled us to, to just pull away from the crowd in early days. We were savages. I love that response for many reasons. And it's like, it, it's so true. And obviously from an agency standpoint, we work with lots of brands and you know, I feel like so many want that holy grail of max efficiency, max scale from the get-go. And, and probably as well, a lot of agencies are telling them they can do it for them, which makes it even harder, right? When, so when you get a bit of a more of a realistic team, who understands these things and to your point, like, you know, how to, how to scale things to that degree. It's a difficult, it's a difficult pill to swallow, right? I, I would argue it's very difficult for any brands, regardless of products and marketing to have max efficiencies, max scale from the get-go and just be able to do that forever. So I, I, I love that approach and it obviously worked. It did. A bit more tactical marketing, Aaron, if, if you don't mind, what channels are you spending on? Are you running paid? What does that look like? What's working? What's not working? Yeah, so we we you know grew our business our pay uh, on paid. We still grow our business uh, with paid media. We're spending on on you know Facebook or Meta. We're spending on Google. Spending on TikTok. We do a lot of out of the home things. So we've sponsored buses, bus stops, and billboards, radio, TV. We have a good we have an influencer portion of the business that that does relatively well. So we, we really are everywhere, but it's always important to never forget, you know, there's always one channel, you know, or one or two channels you don't want to turn off. You know, everything else is, is in growth mode. And those are always, always, in my opinion, going to be meta and Google, uh, at least in our space. Yes, for sure. And from a overall kind of omni-channel perspective, so you guys, you got your online store, Amazon, I'm assuming, retail. At what point was it always omni-channel from a sales perspective or did you start purely online? What was the evolution there and what kind of gave you the, not confidence, but what was the right point at which to expand from just maybe a single point of sale? I think you'll know, I think every brand knows when. And it all depends on the resources at hand. And uh, one thing you don't want to do is make a mistake and take something from one resource that's working and then risk it on something that's not working. And also, like a lot of things come back to like, how do you build brand in a way that works? And oftentimes, you can't be this luxurious brand and then also offer everything on Amazon for less because you need to compete and rank, you know, and vice versa. You can't be at a discount retailer. So there's a lot of things to consider, but there's one thing that I know pays the most dividends and it has. And like, you know, we're in 27, 2800 doors across Canada and the US and those stores order over and over and over again. But in the first two years, we would sell them because they wanted the brand and then nobody would buy. And then they would either want to sell it back to us. It was a headache and they'd never buy again. And it was like, why did, you know, and then they would discount it. It would hurt the brand. It's like, what are we doing? Like, you know, why? And we didn't, we always forgot in the beginning that nothing should ever impact the brand. There's nothing more important than what people think of you when you're not there. And that applies to you, that applies to your brand, that applies to everything. So what we did is we scaled it back. And we went really heavy in providing the absolute best customer experience of all time to investing into our products, to building community. So when we launch products, we call our customers, we talk to them, we get our feedback, we involve everyone possible in the process that we're well, what we're doing. And then over the next two years, we were able to only work with specific retailers that we knew we had demand in that area. And we would even drive traffic to them. 
So the idea like is you'll know when it's right for you and don't just, sometimes we just push to take the money and the short-term money, if you're building a brand, can sometimes be the thing that hurts you the most. Yeah, it's great advice. What's your current biggest challenge? Always going to be people. I mean, we I spend 60 to 75% of my day meeting people, talking to people, getting to know people like yourself, like constantly... Um, meeting and, and figuring out who's the next person that we can bring on our team that we can work with. And uh, I mean, we've been super fortunate to build such a strong team uh, at Hush. It's probably been 99.9% .9 of the reason we've we've had the success we've had. But I spent a lot of my time working with the people on our team and then a lot of time bringing on new people. And the biggest challenge, especially now, because we want people in office, is getting good people, getting them locally, being able to create an environment that uh, gives them a chance at reaching their goals. And everyone has different goals and different timelines. So uh, the biggest challenge is always going to be people. And for us, it's also the biggest opportunity. Yeah. I, you know, it's one thing I've noticed about you. You're a big in-office. And I was a, is, yeah. it, is, is it taboo anymore? I don't know if it is. Um, you're a big in-office kind of fan. I mean, I agree. Whilst at the same time, we're kind of hybrid. So what, why is it so important to you? You know, I think they have been pretty loud about being in an office. I just think that any uh, founder, and this is not a knock on anyone, but any founder that wants to be 100% remote. And by the way, I know some huge companies that do this. You know, Athletic Greens does it. Airbnb does it. There's big companies that do it. They do it successfully. But if you're growing, and I, and I still very much think we're growing, uh, if you're growing and you're building and you're a founder and you don't want to be in person at all, then... It's probably because you as a founder just want to be remote. Like your work style is remote, so you make everyone else work remote. But if you had one bet in your entire, you know, one bet, life on the line, and there's two teams, there's one team that's two, three days office in the office a week, both teams, same caliber, same people, same product, everything, all the variables are same. The only two variables are one team is 100% remote, one team is two to three days in the office together. Every single person I asked says the same answer. Well, who would you bet on? In office, every day of the week. Exactly. So can remote work? 100%. It works. It does work. I have no doubt in my mind. But if you're serious about your business and serious about your goal and, you would, and you're still pushing for only remote, typically when I meet those founders, it's simply because they just want to work out of Costa Rica and that's just their lifestyle and that's what they want to do. And I, I respect that. But I just don't respect it when it's like pushing it from a point of it's better. It's like, no, pushing it from the point of your life is better. And I'm totally cool with that. But for us, it's like the business is the baby and it's the most important thing right now in our lives. And I want to put in the best position to be successful. And I know that position involves being in person a certain amount of time a week. I totally agree. You know, and I think like obviously COVID was the reason why so many businesses went remote, right? And it's like, we're kind of forced into it. You know, I worry about the younger generation coming up and what they're going to miss out on. Because if I look back at like my career, it was in office. And do I remember, like, what do I remember? I remember the relationships I forged, at which were really made possible by being in person. I mean, it used to be day in, day out, right? But it sounds yeah. simple. Maybe it was too much, you know, but... It it definitely was uh, too much yeah. when I was doing the, the yeah. rat race commute in London, where it was like sprinting to the train station because I had to get to work for 9am else I'd be in trouble. Like it, there's definitely, I'm glad there's a shift towards more flexibility, a hundred percent. But I think, you know, you miss out on certain things and I, you know, how did I think about like personal development? How do you get more confident about speaking in public, right? 
doing it in person in an office, having to present things in front of your teams, having to stand up, you know, do these things in front of people. Like if you're not developing those skills because you're fully remote, it's very different behind the camera than when you're in person. Um, and then just, I just feel like you miss out on moments of forging stronger relationships with people, you know, that it's very difficult to replicate in a fully remote setting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, the end of the day, when you get to know someone, the relationship is different and that's what we're betting on. I'm not betting on, am I more distracted when I'm at the office? 1000%. Like there's no doubt in my mind, my work is actually much worse. In fact, I also probably think that other people here, their work is also much worse than when it's at home. I have no doubt. That's not why we're here. We're here because it's important when it's so-and-so's birthday and we all remember to go get a little gift or a cupcake or whatever and sing happy birthday together. That's important. It's important when so-and-so is having a bad day and someone can pick up on that body language and understand that something's happening in their life and we can talk about it. Otherwise, you know, your people are committing two-thirds of their waking hours to being on this mission that I sold them on or your leader sold them on and work just becomes task in, task out, KPI hit, KPI miss, feedback review, quarterly goals, Zoom call, team, like it becomes black and white and it's not, it's it's relationship because the odds that you work at what you're working at right now for the rest of your life is very low. But you know, how old are you? 37. So 37. So odds are in the next 20 years, everyone you meet now will probably be in a much more serious position in whatever the hell they're doing in 20 years. If I had to bet, right? Well, everyone you know now will be in their 50s and their 60s and they'll be doing something right. The person you worked with for five years on Zoom that you've never met and don't know is probably less likely to feel connected to you than the person you spent five years with doing dinners and talking and going through the breakups and all this stuff. And that person now becomes exponentially more mutually valuable, both of you, for the rest of your lives, probably going to their wedding. And, and that's what people forget. It's that this is a people game. We're all talking, we're getting to know each other. You know how many people got invited to people they've never met on Zoom's wedding? Never. Last thing, I don't want to meet you at my wedding. That's weird. But if we met, if we've been working together in the office for the same amount of time, you'd probably come to my wedding. So like, that's the difference. And it's a people game and people forget that. It's all about connection, relationship, and long-term building. So true. Perfectly put. Perfectly put. So Aaron, what's, what's next for Hush? Where, where do you go from here? We're, our catalog is still way too small. So we're really, we've, we've finally built out our R&D team. I was the R&D team for the longest time and I still had to lead it, but at least we have a strong uh, ops team to support us and get stuff done much faster. And I want to leave this brand well over a hundred million bucks before I leave and be able to have a team that's just crushing it and, and, and humming in all cylinders and, you know, I'm a marketer and kind of like a storyteller by trade. So I've always been good at building that side, but it's really building all foundations of the business, which is what's coming, what's happening now. And then uh, once we have our full suite of products, I think we're probably like six or seven products away from, from really being the only place you need to go to for all your betting. And um, that's a place I'd like to see the brand uh, in a few years or even this time next year. Amazing. Do you have a sense of what's next after Hush? 
I know a lot of people ask me that. I, I love business. I love working with businesses. I love starting businesses. I love new ideas. I'm a big energy guy. So if I get excited about something, I usually like to scratch the itch. But, you know, what I've realized about myself is like, not only do I love people, but I love cool people that are, that are good and that mean well and that, and that are consistent. And a lot of people can do things for short periods of time, but consistent people. So just do as much of that as I can. Like, you know, people that fill me up with energy that, that are onto something and I can support them or I can start it or vice versa. But I have so much fun at the game of business that, uh, I'm sure something will be exciting, but it's definitely going to be with, uh, with good people doing fun stuff. But yeah, that's the, that's the goal, right? Cool shit with cool people. That's, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And if you find those people, you will make something work, right? You will make something. Always. Um, threads. We've got to talk about threads. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I don't know. Um, I think you were the first person I saw I on that, actually, when I joined. <laughs> I just remember like a handful of months ago when I went all in on, on Meta and everyone was all, everyone that knew that I was, was just, you know, saying all these negative things and it's over and iOS and the ads and no uh, boomers use it and no one likes Facebook and the metaverse is a sham and Zuck is washed. And, uh, I just, you know, Zuckerberg to me is, is the Steve jobs of social media. And if Steve jobs was alive today and Lawrence, it was just doing anything. We would all put everything we had it more behind him even if he sounded nuts because he is i mean apple is almost a decade after he's been gone more than a decade after he's been gone and it's the most valued company in the world so and zuck is here and he's active and he's in the business and we're fading him doesn't make any sense so uh the grandfather of social media i mean sure myspace this and that but he's always been the best iterator in the world he's always taken something and made it better snapchat to instagram to the stories like he's a known iterator and uh i think the threads execution has been incredible and, and i think he's got the right team to to make it last i mean the hype is gonna obviously drop down a bit but i think uh, if anyone there's any horse that i'm any jockey that I'm betting on, it's it's Mark Zuckerberg, and uh, I just don't. I think he's too young, too smart, and too competitive to uh, to be giving up and and just let Facebook die. It's, I mean, so what he missed on on the Oculus or whatever, like, and did he really miss? Who knows? Like, it might even not miss. So we'll see. I'm with you on that one. Never never bet against Zuck. That's for sure. I like it as well. And you know, you can't. You, I think people just want. You know how it is. People want to say something contrarian or, oh, it's this or that. And, you know, people gravitate towards the, the I guess, the entrepreneurs they they like the most. But, I mean, what a seamless execution. And as if he cares that it's a copy of Twitter. <laughs> like, he's got, he's got access to, what, a couple of billion people that he can just seamlessly say, hey, get on this new app and it's so integrated and so seamless I, I've got like high 70 hopes, million downloads insane the smartest the smartest uh, I would have paid money to see the traffic of Twitter and TikTok uh, when that thing launched because their traffic probably fell off a cliff now I can imagine I can imagine if it if it hadn't Elon would have tweeted about it put it that way he would have been saying oh no yeah impact. if it no hadn't impact. you would have been like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to I, I want to suing I, him or something so I know I know. 
So yeah. and then fighting him in a cage as well, apparently, which uh, I hope they open that one up to betting. That would be an interesting... <laughs> well, dude, thank you so much for being on. Like I said, absolutely thrilled. Um, super impressive what you've built. In my opinion, doing doing it the right way as well, just your approach and philosophy to building teams, building companies. I, I learned stuff listening to you talk, so um, really appreciate your time. Congratulations on what you've built and... I can't wait to see you get hush past that 100 million mark and, and whatever you do next after that. Not to talk too far into the future because I'm sure you're thinking, fuck Daniel, I've got tons of shit to do. <laughs> but you're the sort of person who will, who will make it successful. So uh, thank you for being on, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.